Lord, we, we offer up this worship service to you. We give you thanks that you've brought us here. We give you thanks that you call us to worship together each week. And uh, we want the things we do here to bring glory and honor to you through the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray. And now as we turn to your word, Father, we want, we want to hear you speak to us. And so we pray that you would do that this morning, that any anything that may distract us from hearing what you have to say, fears or anxieties or frustrations, Lord, that you would push them to the side so that we can hear you speak clearly this morning. Father, we pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you say to us this morning. And all God's people said, amen. So we're in Revelation chapter 6. And we will um, read this whole chapter this week. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked. There before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wage, three quarts of barley for a day's wage, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lord opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword famine and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe. They were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had was, had been completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? One of, the, uh, one of the things I call myself at times is an unexpected pastor. 
um, because I use that terminology because um, nobody ever expected me to be a pastor. Not even myself, not my parents, not my friends. I, I actually, I just reconnected with one of my old classmates from college or from high school, and they, they, their response was, "Who would have guessed?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, you're telling me," because my my wife has had this kind of weird winding path. Um, and as I was thinking about that this week, I mean, who would have guessed that the young adult who dropped out of college to start a bait shop that failed, that never even started, and then worked construction, then became a car salesman, worked in a factory, started a business, worked at a vet clinic, worked at a cabinet shop, worked for various farmers, who would have thought that guy would become a pastor? And it sounds crazy, right? It's unexpected. Who would have thought that's the pathway uh, to becoming a pastor? And yet, in the midst of it, I had no idea what was happening, no idea what God was doing. And yet, I look back now and see that God used every single one of those things to prepare me to be a youth director at my previous church and to be pastor at this church right now. I would have never guessed it at the moment, all of these weird twists and turns and ups and downs and good times and bad times. I never would have guessed that they were preparing me for this, and yet God was. And uh, one of the continued storylines of the Bible is that God works in unexpected ways. Um, all of our favorite stories are stories where God does something that we didn't expect him to do. And we see that in the, in the book of Revelation, in particular in this chapter as we dive into it. And as we dive into the chapter, it's important to remember that the whole book of Revelation, we were told this at the beginning, this is a book that was the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's showing us who Jesus Christ is, where is Jesus right now, and it's a book about him bringing about the kingdom of God into the world. And yet as we read the book of Revelation, there are times when we think, how is that bringing about the kingdom of God into the world? If there's unexpected twists and turns, things that kind of confuse us. And we're going to get to that in this week. But, but don't forget, uh, we can't. one of the things with the book of Revelation is that every chapter for a while kind of builds on each other. And so we're in chapter 6, but we can't forget everything that we've learned previously, especially last week's sermon on chapters 4 and 5, because chapter 6 is the same vision. So the same setting of last week is going on in chapter 6. And remember, that vision is happening in heaven, in the heavenly realms. And, and in the midst of everything that's going on on earth, all of the chaos going on on earth, where the, the veil is pulled back and we're given a glimpse of what's happening in heaven. And, that, and that's really important, especially in understanding this chapter. Um, we can't forget the picture uh, from last week of Jesus standing holding the sealed scroll, right? The picture that Jesus is the only one who's worthy to bring about the kingdom of God. He's the only one worthy to, to open each one of the seals of the scroll, which happens this week in this chapter. Jesus starts cracking open seals on the scroll. And we should be surprised at what happens when Jesus starts cracking open these seals, um, we shouldn't, I, I don't think any of us would expect that to happen as Jesus starts opening up the scroll, starts bringing about the kingdom, things start happening that we would not think. And so he breaks the first four seals and we see these four horses with riders, right? They're kind of the, 
the, probably the most famous part of the book of Revelation, right? The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, but actually, um, in the Bible, the, the emphasis is more on the horses than, than the riders themselves. The, the four horses come forth, and oh yeah, there's a rider on the horses. But it's important to remember, how many horsemen are there? There's four, and we've already kind of talked about this, right? The number four is the number of the, the earth. And so the fact that there's four of them, that shows that this is happening throughout the earth. And the fact that every time a rider comes, it's announced by one of the four living creatures that represents the earth. And so all of the symbolism going on here is that these things that are happening, every time a seal is cracked open, these things are happening throughout the entire earth. They're not just localized things. And I also think it's really important to understand, and this is not how, not everyone interprets the book of Revelation this way, but I think, I think it's fairly clear that these things are happening right now. Um, these aren't happening way off in, in the future down the road. They're actually happening right now. The, the picture of, of Jesus at God's right hand holding the scroll, that happened when Jesus ascended into heaven, right? Jesus said, I'm, I'm going into heaven and I'm going to be seated at God's right hand. That's the moment that Jesus held on to the scroll and started opening the seals. And so this happened back then and it's been happening throughout earth. And so all of these seals that are happening are happening back when, when John wrote this book and they're happening right now. But it's also important to remember my sermon back during Advent about birth pains. That, that, that Jesus said these are all birth pains, that they kind of come and they go. And, and as we get closer to the end, as we get closer to the kingdom of God coming, they get more and more intense. And so we see that in Revelation. These, um, all, all of the seals that, that are opened here are all present when, in, in Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about these things. Wars, rumors of war, famine, pestilence. And so these things kind of come and go, but they're happening right here, right now. And so Jesus cracks open the first seal. John says, I looked, behold, a white horse. Its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now there's a lot of opinion on what this rider, horse and rider, represent. Um, I think it's pretty clear, though, if, if we start looking at the symbolism, the color white, crown, and we've already talked about this. Who, who's been represented by the color white and, and crowns on their heads already? God's people already have been. And, and as we go through the book of Revelation, there's a point where Jesus himself is pictured as riding in a white robe on a white horse. And uh, who's the one who has already been pictured last week as the one who, who has overcome, who has conquered? Jesus has. And then even in, if we go back to the sermon before that, into chapters 2 and 3, as, as Jesus was speaking to the churches, he kept telling the churches to the one who overcomes, or overcome and conquer is the exact same word, just translated differently in context. And so the one who conquers to the one who overcomes. And so this, this rider, I think, is clearly a picture of the church being sent out into all of the earth with the gospel. Not conquering through swords or political power, none of that, but conquering with the gospel. It's the fulfillment of the Great Commission when Jesus said, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of every nation. And there's a picture of that happening. The church riding out to all the edges of the earth with the gospel. Conquering and to conquer. And you would say, okay, that makes sense, right? Jesus is cracking open seals. He's bringing about the kingdom. Yeah, that makes sense. The church is going to start going forth and riding out. Um, But then he opens the second seal. And John writes, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. That doesn't sound as good. The color red throughout all of the Old Testament is associated with blood and death and God's wrath. Um, The horseman, it says just explicitly, the horseman was given the job of taking peace from the earth. And the rider is carrying a sword, which is a weapon of warfare. And so this represents what Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24, wars and rumors of war that are going to exist throughout all of creation, throughout history, up until the kingdom finally comes. There will be no peace. And you might think, okay, how does that bring about the kingdom of God? <laughs> Maybe the next one's better. So Jesus opens another seal. He said, I lo-, and then John writes, I look, behold, a black horse. Its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Color black is associated with famine um, throughout, throughout the Old Testament. Um, but it's not quite describing a famine, right? Because there's this, the, the writer's got scales in his hands kind of showing that things are not balanced. Things are not equal. were inflated 20 times or more what their normal price is. And so it's not a complete famine, there's, there, but things are not looking good. It's, things are desperate. And, and there's a lot of conversation about what does it mean at the end where it says, do not harm the oil and the wine. Why, why don't touch those? Some would say, and I, this is how I understood this up until this week, um, that this is saying, you know, the barley and the wheat, they're going to get inflated and go crazy, but there's going to be a limit set on it. And so oil and wine will be okay. They're going to be, there's a limit. So it's a famine, but there's, there's boundaries put on it. Um, but others have pointed out that oil and wine were already really, really expensive and that only the rich afforded that. And so it's showing this kind of economic disparity across the earth that, that and, and so I would say, some would say this is showing the economic disparity between the rich and the poor, between the luxurious living and those who are just scraping by. And I would say that this is talking about how economics is going to fall short. Economics are going to be a mess throughout history, which isn't more promising and isn't, doesn't help us understand how this is helping bring about the kingdom of God. So we hope that the fourth seal is better. I looked, behold, a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death, 
and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. And it doesn't look any better, right? The pale color is represented with death. We're clearly told the writer's name is Death. And they're given authority over a fourth of the earth to bring death to a fourth of the earth through wars, through famines, through pestilence, through plagues, and through natural means. And uh, the number a quarter is just a reminder that it's not four-fourths of the earth. It's not the whole earth that's going to die from this, but a portion of the earth will be um, continually dying in, in various ways. And um, they'll die from wars. They'll die from viruses. They'll die from famines. And they'll die of natural means. And, and uh, the, the COVID pandemic that we're experiencing right now is a reminder that the pale horse is still riding across the earth. But when you understand this as Jesus bringing about the kingdom, it, it's confusing, right? Um, you might be saying, all right, on the one hand, if every time Jesus cracks a seal open, something bad happens, why doesn't he just stop? <laughs> right? Or on the other hand, you could be saying, okay, how in the world do these things bring about the kingdom of God? And I'll be honest, on, on one level... We, we won't ever quite fully understand it. I don't think we need to quite fully understand it. But we do know a few things. And, and, and one of the things that's pictured in these four horsemen is actually a really beautiful, powerful picture that in the midst of all of the mess, in the midst of wars and rumors of war, in the midst of economic turmoil and disaster, in the midst of death, um, the white horse still rides forth. The church will not be held back. The church will continue to move forward in the midst of wars, in the midst of economic mess, in the midst of death. The church continues to move forward. Even in the midst of a pandemic and a plague and COVID, the church will keep moving forward with the gospel. Nothing will stop the church from moving forward. And as Jesus promised, the church will keep moving forward until they get to the gates of hell and they knock the gates of hell down. It's a powerful picture. But the, the four horses were also reminded that Jesus is the one opening the seals. He's in control of these things. They're, they not, they're not forces beyond the control of God, not forces beyond Jesus Christ. And we're reminded in Romans 8.28 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even bad things, even difficult things work to, even your car dying on the side of the road on the way to church works together for our good <laughs> for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And, and as I talk about some of these things, these difficulties and trials, I like to ask a question. Um, was Jesus' death on the cross a good thing or a bad thing? And the right answer is, depends what you mean. Right? Because on the one hand, killing Jesus was the greatest sin that was ever committed in the history of the world. 
it, it was the greatest act of wickedness to ever happen. And so you can't call that a good thing. And yet, we know the other side of the story. That, that through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, he brought about salvation and redemption for the whole world. So it has both things together happening. It's the most wicked thing that has ever happened, but also the greatest act of salvation that has ever happened. And what that reminds us is that we have a God who is powerful enough to accomplish two, two things with the same action. He can accomplish judgment and blessing at the same time. And so as we see wars and rumors of war go out throughout the earth, they are a judgment on sin and wickedness and evil. And yet we're also told that as for God's people, God can use those things for their good, to bless them and to bring about the kingdom. As economies go crazy and go up and down and all over the place, it's, it can be a judgment on sin and wickedness and those who reject God, but God can also use that to bless his people and to bring about his kingdom. Remember what he wrote to the one church in, uh, in Revelation 2 and 3. He said, I see your poverty, but you're actually rich spiritually. God can use that to bless his people. Death, the fourth horse. Death is a judgment on sin and death and wickedness and those who reject God, but God can also use death to bless his people and to bring about his kingdom. And we see that actually right after this as Jesus cracks open the fifth seal. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are the martyrs of the church. John is exiled to the island of Patmos for speaking the word of God and pointing people to Jesus. The churches, in uh, the seven churches that this is being written to, they're in the midst of being persecuted and killed for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, for pointing people to Jesus. And so these are those who have died. And... Uh, and again, this works as a blessing and a judgment. Um, the, there's been a saying throughout the history of the church that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Back in, back in the first, second, third century, the church understood that when persecution came down on the church and people died, the church, the white horse, actually rode out and conquered more. We see that in the book of Acts when they came down and they locked people in prison and killed them. It caused people to scatter out with the gospel and churches blew up all over the world. And so God can use this even to bless. But the beautiful, the beautiful picture that we're given is where are the martyrs, those who've died for the faith? They're in the very presence of Jesus. They're under the altar. They're, they're, the, the altar is where the sacrifice was, and they're under Jesus' sacrifice, protected. Almost picture like a little kid hiding under their dad's desk when they're afraid. This is the martyrs hiding under the altar, being placed under the altar, protected by Jesus Christ in heaven. No longer down on earth dealing with the wars and the economic mess and death, but they've been removed and they're placed in the presence of God because of Jesus' blood. And they've overcome. This is, this is the big theme of this. And they're crying out, O sovereign Lord, 
holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long is the cry of, of the Psalms? You hear this over. How long, O oh Lord? How long must I have trial and difficulty? How long will people continue to persecute me? And they're crying out. How long before those who killed us will find judgment from God? How long before those who are persecuting the church will be repaid for their wickedness? Because they trusted God. They did not take vengeance into their own hands. They trusted God when he said, vengeance is mine, not yours. Not yours is not there, but it's assumed. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not yours. You trust me until death. And so they're asking him, when are you going to do this then? When are you going to take vengeance on those who are wreaking havoc on the church and the world? And the answer is, they are each given a white robe, told to rest a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. They're crying out, how long before you bring judgment, Lord? And he says, here, let me, let me clothe you in my white robe and my righteousness, and you keep resting. And the answer is, not yet. It's coming, but not yet. There, there are more Christians who will suffer. There are more Christians who will die. But one day, when their wrath is stored up, I will come in judgment. He won't come until the time is complete, until in his perfect timing. And that's, uh, he, God always waits to bring massive judgment until it's obvious that they deserve it. That was, it was the same thing at the time of the flood. God waited until it was obvious that it, they deserved it. It was the same thing with Egypt after they rejected ten times. God waited and brought judgment. Same thing with those um, in the promised land, when God's people came into the promised land, he made them wait 450 years until their wrath had been stored up enough for that. But God will come, and he will bring judgment, and he will avenge his people, but he'll do it in his perfect timing. When it's clear that that judgment is very, very deserved. And then he opens the sixth seal. And he said, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as a sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, there's a lot of disagreement on this passage, and... and uh, I'm not saying I have the full answer on this. Um, there are a lot of people, many, many people who interpret this as literal. This literally is going to happen. Earthquake, sun become black, moon like blood, stars fall from the sky. Um, but here, I, I struggle to interpret it that way because every single other portion of this vision has been symbolic. Every other portion has been symbolic. And so why, why switch now? And so that, that's my struggle with it. Not because I don't think God can do this, or because I don't think God will do this at the very end. Remember, all of these things in these seals 
are kind of ramping up towards something big when Christ comes again. And so right before Christ comes again, will the earth basically fall apart? That's the image? Yes. But as you read through the Old Testament, this language has been given over and over and over again in the Old Testament prophets. And it's always this sign of God's judgment on those who reject him, even his own people. He tells his own people, if you continue to reject me, the sky is, there's going to be earthquakes. The sky is going to be black. The moon's going to be like blood. I'm going to come on judgment, in judgment against you. And so it seems to me like what's happening here is in, when the fifth seal is cracked, there's the martyrs in heaven crying out to God, when will you bring judgment? And he said, not yet. But then he cracks another seal and they see that he is bringing judgment now. And it will come in its full eventually at the end of time. That this judgment is happening right now in the earth. The wicked right now do not just run free. It may seem like it to us at times, but they do not run free. They're still under his control. And God is bringing judgment upon the wicked now. And that judgment will increase as wickedness increases until one day when the kingdom comes, it will be completely overcome and destroyed. And that judgment even, the judgment of the wicked and discipline of God, that actually works as a blessing and as a curse as well. In in Joel, if you go to Joel chapter 2, when you come home from church today, open it up and read it, and you'll see all the same imagery of earthquakes and sun turning to blood, or moon to blood, and sun turning black. But then he says, and it will come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, I'm coming in judgment, and if you repent, and you look to me and call on the name of the Lord, you call on my name, you will be saved. And that's a blessing. That's a blessing. It's okay to, for God to come in discipline if it, when it brings you back. But what we see happen in Revelation 6 is very opposite. God comes in judgment, and it says, The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, uh, you know, these are all of the people who are persecuting the church right now, at, you know, right now and, and when John wrote this. And then it says, Then everyone, slave or free, anyone who's rejecting God, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. When God's judgment and discipline came, they did not repent. They actually cried out, we would rather die than look to you and trust you. Kill us before, before that we would trust in God. For salvation. And we see both of these responses today, right? I mean, I, I see this as I interact with people over the years that some people fall under the discipline and judgment of God for sin in their life. And what happens is it doesn't soften their heart. It actually causes their heart to become harder, right? They, they just double down. They don't repent of their sin. They just double down and they refuse to repent. They refuse to turn away from their sin. And they basically say, I would rather die than trust in Jesus. But then I see other people where God comes and he disciplines them for sin in their life, things, and brings judgment, and what happens is their heart softens. They're convicted of their sin, and they turn to God, and they say, I'm sorry, and they repent of their sin, they turn from it, they look to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, they trust him, 
And as he promised, they receive eternal life. Both responses are happening. They've been happening throughout the, the history of the church, and we shouldn't, be res- we shouldn't actually be surprised when we see both things happening. But as we, as we wrap up, um, again, we, we need to never lose sight that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? I said this the very first week, that, that every part of this book is asking the question, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus when we see wars and rumors of war? Where is Jesus when we see economies crumbling? Where is Jesus when we see viruses spreading across the globe? We see death everywhere. Where is Jesus when we see his people being killed? Where's Jesus when we see the wicked triumphing? And the answer is, it's right here. He's still holding on to every one of those things. He's holding on to them. He's in control. And he's judging those who are persecuting his people right now. He's judging the wicked. They are not getting off scot-free. God is bringing judgment on them. But he's also caring for his people. He's also protecting his people. He's with his church, right? He's right here in the midst of the church. And he refuses to let his church be crushed by any of these things. If war were to break out right here in Beaver Dam, the church would still move forward. If the economy crumbled right here in Beaver Dam, the church would still move forward. If death and famine and plague hit Beaver Dam really, really bad right now, the promise is the church will move forward. The church won't just sit back. The church will actually move forward, conquering and to conquer in the midst of the chaos. But there's something else with this chapter I really want to point out, and it's actually something I haven't seen anyone else mention, but I think it's clear that this picture, this whole chapter shows beautifully Jesus overcoming the idols of the earth. People want to trust in wars to bring about peace in the earth. And this says, no. Wars will not bring peace to the earth. There will not be peace to the earth. It falls short. People want to put their hope and trust in economies. And it's, we're reminded, no, economies are going to be up and down and sideways. And, and they're going to crumble. They'll never bring about pure, perfect flourishing. People want to put their hope in humanity. We're strong enough to do this. And we're reminded, no, we keep dying. And we will keep dying. We will not live forever. People want to put their hope in created things like the earth. We get a picture of the earth crumbling and falling apart while Christ stands above it. People want to put their hope in the goodness of humanity and the goodness of our own hearts. And yet we watch people choose to die rather than to repent and trust in Jesus. And the overwhelming picture of this chapter is that all of those things fall short, but Christ does not fall short. Someone who puts their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ, they will overcome. No matter what happens, war, economies crumbling, death, they will overcome. You put your hope in any of these other things, you will be left in hopeless and in despair. But the promise is if you put your hope in Jesus Christ, you will receive comfort, you'll receive protection, 
and you will receive salvation. And the promise is that any difficult thing that happens in your life will be flipped around and used as a blessing. And you'll continue to be part of the church which continues to push forward to the edges of the earth so that every nation will hear the gospel. And then we'll spend eternity with Christ in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these images, these promises we have. It's so easy in our own lives to look around at what's happening in our own communities, our own nations, see what's happening across the world, and to be in despair, to feel like everything's falling apart, to feel like there's chaos, and we give you thanks for the reminder that you're with your people, with the church, moving the church forward, that you're standing over the chaos, holding on to them in control, still bringing about your kingdom. And even though we can't see what's happening, we can trust you. And we know that you've got us. And you will never let us go. And as we hope and trust in you and rest in you, you promise that we will overcome no matter what trial comes our way. And so, Father, continue to stir our hearts, give us strength, give us peace, give us hope. And we pray that you would continue to hold on to us and pull us through. Father, we do trust you. We pray that you would increase our trust. And all God's people said, amen.